What's going on, family? It's your man, Kate, to the second letter. I am sitting here uh, with, I mean, the dream Hudson. And we are excited to tell you that the master classes that we make available to our patrons monthly, we are making one available to all, all. every race, creed, and ethnicity. You can get this work. So a part of our CRT series is gifting you with this very, very thorough uh, breakdown of the topic from our good friends Bradley Mason and Nathan Karahenya yes. at the same time. So yes. enjoy it and know that if you join our Patreon community, uh, you can have access to classes like this regularly. If you want more content like this, make sure to sign up for our Patreon. But as of now, enjoy this. We are on Southside, Rabbi. We have two heavy hitters in the building right now that I only could compare to a tag team uh, duo like uh, Animal and Hawk yes, from what, what were they called? The Road Warriors? I can't remember what well, they that's were what called. called but that's what they gonna be called. But that's what they gonna be called. We got Road Warriors on. So that's that, we're that's talking how, Shaq that's and how Kobe. I, that, we're talking Shaq and Kobe. We're talking Michael and Pippen. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? We're talking. Uh, I don't Shaq. know if we want to be compared to that right now. Right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's what I was never gonna mind, say. Never mind. Because you know what I'm saying. Shaq and Kobe fell out, and you know Pippen was like Michael was a jerk. So, um, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm gonna say uh, these guys, um, man, they've been very uh, influential um, in my life, and also in my understanding of uh, critical race theory. Uh, not just because they have written about it, but because they have constantly pushed. All of the, all of their audience to read the actual source material. This is just one piece, um, and and to engage with the actual scholars themselves rather than uh, just critics' own characterizations of what critical race sure. theory is. Um, so, if you guys don't know who I'm talking about, I have brother Bradley Mason in the building. We also have brother Nathan Luis Cartagena in the building, and yes. we have them both here together on Southside Rabbi. Yes. Y'all make noise for our guys. I'm so glad y'all are here. Yes, indeed. Thank y'all so much for joining us. You know what I'm saying? Hey, and yes, thank you guys for coming, man. So. I have to jump into it, man. We have to. We have to now, jump into now, it. Now, folks have already heard, um, Nate, by the time you hear this, yes. you would have heard the other three episodes. Right. But you've heard their two episodes. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, that Dr. Nathan Cartagena. 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 I'm putting some extra, uh, rolling some extra <laughs> stuff in there. I'm sorry. Right. Um, so... Um, so you, you've heard this episode. Our patrons have actually been responding in very, very encouraging ways to that episode. Mm -hmm. It is, in a lot of ways, what we've done here, what we've wanted to do here, is not just start with, here is a kind of exposition of exactly what CRT is, do what you want with it. But there's other things happening in the culture outside of defining it. In fact, right. what we are finding in some cases, that defining it is not enough for people. So you define what it is and they say, well, I don't care. I still want to believe what I know it's not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But what we've also wanted to do, and I think what these episodes have done, is till the heart. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of work mm -hmm. around this subject of how people are approaching it. Prejudices that come out, agendas that come out, lack of understanding of what the gospel is in general. All those things are in play in our sort of interaction with 
this subject. And I think that what both of you brothers have done in a lot of ways has helped us to get to a place where we can now actually talk about the facts. Okay. Um, So with that being said, Mm -hmm. I mean, how you want to pop this off? Yeah. uh, With that being said, I would love for you guys to start with the way that you would both define critical race theory. So I know that uh, Bradley and Nathan, you guys have a little bit of a different definition of what CRT is, but they complement one another. Um, and so I am, I'm going to ask, I'll ask Bradley to go first with how you define it. And then Nathan, I'll ask you to go second after Bradley. So brother Bradley, how do you define critical race theory? Somebody came up to you and they say, what is critical race theory? How would you define it? It depends who the person is. <laughs> uh, that, that makes it harder when I just throw anyone out there. But generally, like the written definitions I give is just that it's the civil rights movement, right? The discourse of the civil rights movement critically transformed to a new legal era of color blindness and equal opportunity, right? So because I think at bottom, that's what it is. It's it's taking that long historical discourse of minoritized people's struggles and and um, sort of working through civil rights legislation and within the legal system and, and developing a, a legal approach to dealing with those. And then actually, you know, achieving what looked like to be a lot of those ends with Brown versus Board of Education. And then of course the Civil Rights Acts, um, 64, 65, 68. And then, and then seeing how the um, the legal system then responded to that to sort of um, shift the meaning of those terms in that discourse in order to perpetuate the same subordinated circumstances. So then, Bell, Freeman, others later come along, and then they're beginning to understand, you know, how how that legal discourse has been transformed to just preserve right the unjust circumstances. And so using some tools, you know, critical tools out of, you know, uh, legal studies and other areas, we're able to sort of transform that discourse to respond to that new environment. So Mm. that first sentence was the short uh, definition. The rest was a little bit of an explanation. Gotcha. I'm tempted to just adopt Nathan's. (laughs) <laughs> would probably be better, but no, that's good. But in, in order to preserve a contrast, right? That's good. That's where I'm going. That's real yeah. good. Well, Manos, let me begin uh, as I think, as I must. Uh, I want to acknowledge whose lands I'm on. I'm on the ancestral lands of the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Patawanami. Sure. Um, I, I want to also give us a brief threefold presentation of CRT. And this is in fact, something that uh, Hermano Mason and I have, have, have published on our, on our different, our respective websites. Mm-hmm. So first is what, what I'll call CRT proper. And this is, you're going to hear echoes of what, what Hermano Mason has just said. So first we're thinking about what is CRT proper? Well, I, I say this CRT is a legal movement that is aimed at understanding, resisting and remediating the ways in which Law and legal institutions like law schools promote and maintain racism and white supremacy. Mm. That's the big goal. Now, one of the things that's helpful about presenting the that proper definition is it can account for precisely what 
what Hermano Mason has said about the ways in which CRT scholars like Derek Bell, who was actually working with Thurgood Marshall, he was working with Medgar Evers. Uh, he was he was friends with Evers. In fact, was was on a brief vacation when Ed, when Medgar Evers was assassinated, wow. and it and it wrecked him. Mm. It wrecked him. But but what you what you see with somebody like Derek Bell, who's the, who's the founder of CRT, is a is is a brother who, out of actually Christian convictions is trying to promote desegregation in the South. Mm. Now he ends up going and being the very first tenured African-American professor at, at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's bringing his experiences um, in the South and he's, he's reflecting on the ways in which the legal systems have promoted and maintained white supremacy, certainly before Brown v. Board, but also after it, because again, he was in the South and he's seeing all this resistance and he's seeing all these subtle sneaky ways in which people use the law to maintain voter suppression, to maintain uh, the ability to say all deliberate speed, which is Brown v. Board's two decision about when we're going to get desegregation in schools, mm -hmm. is going to keep on sliding into the 70s, into the 80s, etc. So Bell is trying to under understand that. And, and his colleagues, students that become uh, the, the people that helped to found the CRT movement, people like Richard Delgado, Charles Lawrence III, Mary Matsuda, Kimberly Crenshaw, they're doing the kind of critical work that Hermano Mason just said in legal settings. Wow. Then we have to see that they launched the CRT movement officially in 1989, and it's already under pressure. So you already have, uh, you already have uh, Randall Kennedy saying, whoa, 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 there, I got some problems with people like Bell and Delgado. Mm. And so one of the very first official, as it were, once the movement gets launched, CRT pieces is Delgado's response to uh, Randall Kennedy. So that's happened in 89. And then by 1993, people that are studying in education become interested in CRT and they begin what's known as CRT in education. So here gets the second sense of CRT. So first there's the proper, mm -hmm. then there's the second sense of what I call CRT in its academic derivative senses. Mm -hmm. So the question you have to ask is, and I'm, I hear I'm echoing the thoughts of, of a post-colonial scholar, Edward Said, how is it that theories travel into other disciplines? Mm. How do they travel into other disciplines? So how is it that education scholars received CRT and then what did they do with it? So people, some like Gloria Lanson Buildings uh, are going to say, yeah, I see this really rich stuff in, in this legal field. And now what I want to do is, is try to maintain its distinctives and just think about its distinctives as they would apply to education. Mm. But then there are other scholars like Daniel Solorzano who said, oh, because I've studied with Paulo Freire, I think that what I need to do is reinvent CRT to meet the needs of, in particular, efforts to educate Chicanos and Chicanas, Latinos and Latinas in places like California. Mm. Not exclusively, but especially. Mm -hmm. So you get you get Gloria Lanson Billings saying we have to preserve it, and then just think about extensions. And you get somebody like Daniel Solorzano saying, no, 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 we need to think about how we can reinvent it. So those are two very different approaches. And when I first learned about CRT from Dr. Tommy J. Curry, this was back when he was at Texas A&M. Now he's at he's at the University of Edinburgh. He founded the very first ever Black Male Studies Institute. This was all the way back in 2011. Dr. Curry says, well, look, you, you need to be careful about what you think is CRT and what you're going to read if you want to know what CRT is. He said, because even at 2011, CRT was being gentrified. Mm. So some of the ways that CR, CRT traveled into places like philosophy involved people taking the label CRT, hollowing it out from any of its founding sources, and then saying, oh, well, here's some stuff on 
race and racism. And I'm going to call that CRT. Mm. You know, it, it almost sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. And then we get to the last sense, which is what I call the culture war sense. Okay. And this is what you're going to find with people like Christopher Rufo, who are now openly acknowledging that they've taken the label critical race theory and are and are trying to cram everything that they think middle to upper middle class racialized white U.S. citizens are going to hate and think are crazy. And he's saying, I'm going to call that CRT. Mm-hmm. So we get to where we are now, where there's tremendous confusion. And bluntly, I think something that Hermano Mason and I both find is that many aren't all that interested once they start to find these distinctions, like, OK, it's a little bit helpful, but let's not talk about this legal stuff. And maybe let's not even talk about the derivative stuff. I just want to talk about Rufo. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's yep. so tragic to me then is there's a failure to love our CRT neighbors. Mm-hmm. There's a failure to enter into their reflections, a failure to enter into their sufferings, a failure to enter into their perspectives. But instead, you get these culture war visions where it's like, well, okay, just tell me about Kendi and D'Angelo, neither of whom, for example, are critical race theorists. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear what Bell has to say. I don't want to hear what Crenshaw has to say. I don't want to hear about what Robert A. Williams of the, of the Lumbee tribe has to say. Like, none of that matters to me. Just give me Delga- uh, just give me um, D'Angelo and, and Kendi. And that's precisely the sort of thing that Hermano Mason and I are trying to resist because we want to promote love of God and neighbor, which requires attending to the theories and the movements that our neighbors develop. Mm, right. Yep. It's good. Man. Can I, can I add one? Thing? Please, 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 brother. Even, even further, you know, we're in a place now where Christian quote unquote leaders are willing to lie about what these people said and mm. about what these people wrote. I mean, yeah. that's step one in loving neighbor is, is just right. don't lie about what they said. If you, if you want to critique them or you have problems or you, you don't find the applications to be just moral or useful, right. then first at least present what they said, you know, fairly. Right. And, and it, I kind of get the sense sometimes that that a lot of us Christians believe that non-Christians are fair game for slander, you know, mm, because yep. they're the opponent no matter what. And Jesus is king. So, you know, we win in the end. They're just a pebble in my shoe and I can don't even have to try to represent them or even read before I criticize them. You know, and we would never do that or we shouldn't do that. Just, you know, a friend of ours, a family member, sure. or, you know, another neighbor that we know we're supposed to love. But what about what about the atheist neighbor, you know, or mm-hmm. or in this case, a, a large group of people, as as Nathan's pointed out, who are not at all hostile to the faith. Sure. When you talk to them personally or read. Um, but, but like many people are going through this exact experience today, they don't see people professing Christianity actually living up to what they think Jesus is saying about right. loving neighbor or about caring for the poor or about, you know, uh, relieving the oppressed, all of those things. They just don't see that happening. So generally their faith tends to go off into a, a different spiritualism, a, a sep- separation from the institutional church. Right. So it's, it's not like they're hostile to the God of the scriptures at all in real conversation. I, but we've done such a ham fisted job in dealing with them as people mm. and, and in dealing with their scholarship that, you know, there's there's a tendency to, to pull away a little bit, you know, right. which I think is, is in many ways expected. This isn't true of everybody, but I know I've spoken to people. I know Nathan has had the same conversations as well. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Y'all mind if I go in just a little go bit? Go ahead, balls, man. Please, please. The, the, the floor is, is yours. We don't have no time limit. Right. Go ahead. I mean, watch. You say no time limit. I'm used to island time. Be careful now. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> Be careful. We just want so y'all to feel me, free. Me, go ahead. 
let, let me let me try to set it up now from from some of the insights that I would I'd be sharing from my my social location from mi familia for, especially from uh, mi familia de Puerto Rico. So I often see in the interactions that uh, especially those in evangelical circles have towards CRT a kind of colonizer mentality. Mm. Here's what I mean: there isn't an interest. And mutual reciprocity. Mm. There isn't an interest in growing and understanding. There isn't even a thought that I would have things to learn from any of these CRT scholars. And by the way, when I say it's a movement, one of the things I'm getting at is it's a movement that houses competing traditions. So this movement houses very different traditions. And within right. those traditions, you get people that are championing competing theories. So there is diversity all the way down in the CRT yeah. movement. But many are, are, are suggesting, no, I don't need to know any of that. In fact, at best, what you get is this, again, still a very much colonizer mentality. I'll just eat the meat and spit out the bones, mm. but I'll determine what the meat is oh, right. and I'll determine what the bones are. Yeah. And in fact, I'm doing all that while not really listening to you. And that's precisely the kinds of things that my ancestors coming from Iberia, from Spain and from Portugal were doing to my Taino ancestors wow. when they were going to places like Puerto Rico. Like, no, no, we don't have anything to do with to learn from you because you're the heathens, you're the pagans, you sit down and we'll educate you. Mm. And if yeah. you have a robust vision of the Imago Dei, of being made in the image of God, and if you have a robust vision of the Spirit's work, then you don't do that. You instead do something like what Paul's doing in the Areopagus, and you go, my goodness, I see you all love God. And in oh. fact, I see that you all have something set aside for a God. Let me talk to you. In fact, let me spit some of your poets to you. Let's mm. have a dialogue, because there are things that I have learned from you that I see actually help to bear witness to the triune God. Now, yes, do you still need to learn much more? Of course. That's a very different posture. Mm, that's a right. very different posture. And remember, that's a posture coming from somebody who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Yeah. Studying the school of Gamaliel. Yeah, right? He's going to he's going to pagan sisters and brothers. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know what? We could we could have a dialogue, couldn't we? In fact, there are things here that that, that your poets have said that are spot on because we live, move and have our being in God. And you're going, oh, my goodness, Paul. You see, it's, yeah. a, it's such a different posture. And, and one of the things I want to stress is even Edward Zaid, who I mentioned before, highlights how you get these modes of colonial imperial visions of, of knowledge and things like the construction of what he calls Orientalism. And now one of the things I want to say is you get the same thing with CRT in exactly the way that Hermano Mason is getting. You get this construction by people that are self-identifying as CRT scholars, and you ask them basic questions like, well, do you know who, you know who Freeman is, Alan Freeman? Do you, know, you, do you read Derek Bell's, um, uh, have you read Derek Bell's work on racial remediation or serving two masters? And they just flat out tell you no in public. And they're still claiming that they're CRT scholars. And those are, I mean, those are some of the earliest pieces of CRT. Right, like foundational pieces. <laughs> right. Yes, yep. it's exactly. These are part of the canon. It's kind of like saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a biblical scholar. And you're like, so, I mean, do you know some stuff about Genesis and, and Exodus? And like, no, no, no. But but I think I might have read something about Matthew. And you're like, oh, my goodness. But but you get now this construction of visions of what CRT is supposed to be in a way that's like, again, I'm going to I'm going to um, give Said's ideas of what you had scholars doing when they were going colonizing, creating Orientalism. And, and one of the things that Edward Said says is like what they say Orientalism is and how it's supposed to attract people from the Middle East or or, the, or Southeast Asia. He's like, this isn't even close to what they what they believe, mm, what they think, what's going on. Right, but sure. then he says this other part, and this is the last thing, and, and I'll be done. He Don't says, notice how these things get construction. It's a failure to love neighbor, as I would say. But then he goes further and says, and this is all a part of trying to acquire knowledge to have dominion over 
those that you deem the Orientals. Mm. Right? That's why Napoleon is so interested in learning about the modes and methods of folks in Egypt when he goes and conquers there, because he wants to know, how do I better exploit them? How do I better govern them? And so some of what goes on, and even the even those that are getting to some of the primary texts, is they're not coming with expectations that they have things to learn. They're coming looking for the ways in which they can dominate the author and then pre present that mode of domination to other sisters and brothers that don't have time to read the primary texts. Right. Man. Hey, we could probably stop right there. <laughs> but no, go it's ahead, Brian. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Mason. No, I said I need like 10 minutes to just sit and ponder what he just said. <laughs> it's insane, I man. I gotta, yeah, that's that's something. I mean, I can I can completely I can completely see that. That just mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. Cause I always saw that as sort of like a, maybe like a retrenchment move or, or, or to make something so pedestrian that it's no longer dangerous. But I hadn't, I hadn't put it in that other context of, you know, basically um, colonialism, you're, you're raping it of its resources. You're here to dominate. Right. And it's, and then, and then bringing it into your own system in order to, to fuel your enterprise. I mean, that's exactly what's happened. So it's crazy. Yeah. I'm just left here. Thinking. What Brother Nathan said, uh, what Doctor, what Doctor Nathan said, for, uh, just to be honest, reminds brother me. Brother Nathan's fine, brother. So hold yeah, yeah, on, okay, man. okay. No, I'm just, you know, you I like to the respect. I like, I, I get you the double. It's I get honorific pluralism. I'm appreciated. It, um, it reminds me a lot. Like, like Bradley said, if, it, it actually reminds me of a lot of what's happening in the culture war conversation. It reminds mm -hmm. me exactly of what. Uh, not to give him more airtime, but what Christopher Rufo is doing, which he's actually admitted to when he said, I'm redefining what I literally said, I'm redefining what critical race theory is. Right. Yeah. Which is a kind of domination. I'm coming in here. Yeah. I'm, I know that, that that there's been so much work that has done thousands been done of pages before I've got yeah. here, but I'm coming in here and I'm going to decide that this is how it needs to be defined, because this is what I think it really is saying. And it's crazy that you would think that you have the monopoly on thinking uh, on being able to determine what it's really saying, opposed to all of the scholars that have come before you yes. that have clearly talked about what is really being said. Yes. You know what I mean? That, and I think that's also a, um, a perpetual place of pride for the culture in general, mm -hmm. and which it, it kind of extends to the church because we, we have seen in our neighborhoods people from the, let's just let's say the north side, so, mm -hmm. so, so uh, middle to upper class, plant mm -hmm. churches in the in the middle of you know the right. hood, but mm -hmm. they're parachuting in is almost like an alien reality, right? To tell everybody mm -hmm. there what they need to know, what they need to be doing, and and we feel the 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 right to do that because we're God's people. We are the ones that take dominion over the land. So we don't collaborate we don't collaborate any of the churches there. What we've seen over and over again is that uh, these million dollar budget churches show up, they parachute into these neighborhoods and then they give these the these services that then weaken the churches around them. Right. Uh they're not giving any thought uh, that someone else has been building here that that could even teach them about the history and the the kind of nature and DNA of the none of that matters. Mm -hmm. Why do I need to know that? We are the ones with the gospel. We show up and it's all a kind of colonizing church planning right. that we've seen in in our mm -hmm. in our community and i think that this this is the the perpetual issue culture wide mm -hmm. is that we feel a sense of entitlement and ownership that allows us to dominate wherever we want and the, and and then we can then find an audience of people that will then say keep going 
Right. The internet gives you that, gives you that, that, that sort of, uh, that, that liberty that you can literally, I have never heard in any of these, if you take any of these conservative outlets or, or anybody that's out on the front line of trying to tear down this, this, uh, what, what critical race theory is doing to the world, they don't talk to critical race theorists. <laughs> they, they, they've never had one on the show, Christian or otherwise. Right. Because yeah. at this point, and which is, which is where I would like to move the conversation into, I'm starting to question if defining critical race theory is important to them at all. Right. Like, so if we do spend some time, which I would like for us, can we talk through the general meeting places that critical race theory uh, shares, crit critical race theorists share, but then I'm also not as optimistic that that will even mean anything to people. Because right. as I've been trying to say, no, that's actually, as Christopher Rufo was saying that critical race theory teaches uh, race essentialism. Right. That essentially all you are is white and all I am is black and that's how you will be forever. And it's like, hey, that literally cannot work with intersectionality. Here's what intersectionality means. Right. Intersectionality belies that point. Right. Not only that, but critical race theorists themselves have clearly said explicitly, yes. we do not, we are anti-essentialists. <laughs> so, I I, so I think that- But like, it, it hasn't encouraged people to be like, oh, maybe I should stop saying that. Message. Which is why I think that for me, the goal for us, uh, not just for me, but the goal for us, I don't, I don't think that even in our discussion here, it's about the people that are- committed to ignorance that's good my i think that the goal for us is the people that want to actually really learn and engage in honest dialogue that's good. which is why i think that this is great you know what yeah. i mean um and so going to to to, to move forward because I, I i know that nathan you brought up crt proper you also talked about um the the culture war sense of crt which we talked about with rufo i think that a part of that culture war sense of crt especially what a lot of our audience have been have been talking about is I think that some of uh, in that culture war argument are people that constantly um, use Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo as the figureheads for CRT. So they say that uh, uh, what I, I am hearing from Kendi and what I'm hearing from Robin D'Angelo, first of all, they are critical race theorists and they're teaching critical race theory. Can you can you guys both explain to us why you would say that Kendi and D'Angelo are not critical race theorists? And that that is those are not the folks that you should be going to if you want to actually really know what critical race theory is and isn't. Mm. Yeah, Hermano Mason, you want me to start? Or you want to start, brother? Well, I'll take the easy one. Uh, <laughs> Kendi said now multiple times, I am not a critical race theorist. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's on the record. That's clear. It's even clear in his latest Atlantic piece. Right. Right. He makes very clear critical race theory. That's a different group of people. I didn't. I didn't go to law school. I don't do law. I'm a historian. The books I write are historian. And then, and then how to be an anti-racist obviously is not history, but it is coming from his, you know, unique perspective. Mm -hmm. He feels he's learned a lot from critical race theory. Uh, he's trying to apply some of those things. He very much respects them. But even in that context, he says, if you want to know what critical race theory is, go read critical race theorists, go read Crenshaw, <laughs> go read, read Matsuda. He said that as plain as day. So he doesn't understand himself to be a, a critical race theorist. And then and then also, as um, as Nathan and I have written about, th there's very clear differences between his approach to anti-racism. His definitions of racism are different. For instance, racist policy. You know, he seems to be and and there's been some 
he said some things recently that maybe I want to hear more <laughs> mm -hmm. about it because maybe there's more nuance than's led on in the book in, in the way he's intending to present it. But he does tend to present uh, a racist policy as any policy with disparate impact, period, mm -hmm. done. And whereas we know that that's not the critical race tradition, we, if we go back to, to Charles Lawrence III's um, id, ego, and, and equal protection, He's very clear in there that, that not all policies with disparate impact have racial meaning. Right. And wow. That there are, but there are tests to be developed to determine what does have racial meaning. And that's I think we talked about that last time mm -hmm. um, when we spoke before, is that you have to take in like the cultural meaning of a policy. It's history. You know, there's other things that are involved in determining whether it's it's a racial act or it carries with it racial meaning, right? Just raising a rate on something or a bus fare or a bridge toll isn't in and of itself. But if that bridge is somehow connecting, you know, a white community and a black community where there's been, you know, historic intentional segregation, right. well then yeah, bus fare or uh, a bridge fare increase in that area probably does have racial meaning. So there's a lot more that goes into it, whereas Kendi seems to present it just as if there is a disparate impact, then there is racial meaning or it is a racist policy. So I think that as just an example of, of, of different ways where CRT and Kendi don't connect on some of the basic ideas. And, and, and I don't even say that to disparage Kendi or his work because I very much appreciate what he writes. I have enjoyed his books. I love reading his columns in The Atlantic. I've learned a lot from him as a historian, but not as a critical race theorist or a legal scholar, sure. which he's happy to admit. Oh, what a point. That's really good. Let me pick up with what you were saying, Hermano Mason, regarding Kendi as a historian. So Kendi is, has repeatedly said, I'm a trained historian. And when you read his work, especially say Stan from the beginning, it's obvious. Yes, that's what he's trained in. He's, he's also... If you, if you read, so I, I talk about three levels of reading. There's reading the lines. So you read the words that are there. Then you read between the lines. You're like, hold on. If I'm looking at a poem, for example, and it begins with a discussion of a tree and ends with the discussion of a tree, I'm asking, why did the poet decide to frame this piece this way? Now mm -hmm. I'm reading between the lines. And then you can read beyond the lines, which goes something like this. Well, wait, wait a second. What were the social circumstances in which the poet wrote this? What was what was he or she trying? What, what were they bearing witness to? What were they participating in? What were the pressures that were going on, et cetera? So I say that because when I read between the lines, when I'm reading Kendi's books, Stand from the Beginning or How to Be an Anti-Racist, this is what I see. The only CRT scholar he has any sustained engagement with is Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. oh. And he only engages Crenshaw's two pieces on intersectionality. Oh. There's nothing about, for example, her piece on reform and retrenchment from 88. Then mm -hmm. and, and there, there there are no discussions about her pieces on here's what CRT is 10 years from the dawn of the movement or 20 years from the dawn of the movement doesn't do that. And this is very important because here's what you see. Kendi takes Crenshaw's ideas about intersectionality and then runs with them. And this is most clear in how to be an anti-racist to extend her ideas and establish his own ideas about how intersectionality mm -hmm. works. So this is another example of how CRT could travel, right? But it's not any, it's not the whole movement. It's not even, it's not even like a tenth mm. of the CRT scholars. It's Kimberly Crenshaw. And here's how Kimberly Crenshaw gives us some ideas about intersectionality, which is saying we have to think about not just what it is to be black, but what it is to be, uh, or just what it is to be a woman, but what is it to be a black woman? And to find that, for example, in her 89 piece, she's talking about how there are cases where you had black women saying we're experiencing unique forms of segre uh, of discrimination tied to our being 
black women, not just black, not just women. And the judges that would rule in these cases, like, well, we don't have we don't have categories for that. Either you're bringing a, a sex discrimination or gender discrimination, or you're bringing a racial discrimination. So you pick. And they're like, but we're not experiencing the same problems as black men, and we're not experiencing the same problems as white women. We're experiencing a unique set of problems that come with what she calls compounded complexity, what it is to be a black woman. And, you know, she'll say similar things in her 91 piece when she's thinking about intersectionality, about well, what is it to be a, a Latina that doesn't speak English, that's coming from, the, you know, from places that aren't, for example, Cuba. So where you, as soon as you land, you're going to be given sanctuary, but you're coming from a place like Honduras. So now you're seen as a special kind of threat. She's thinking through those kinds of questions. But but that point, Kendi doesn't pick up either. Uh, so so Kendi, I, I want to highlight he. Even when we look at what he draws from, from CRT, it's extremely limited. It's not like Solarzano. It's not like Lancet Billings, who are who are deeply informed by people like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado. You don't see that ever in his work. Now, I guess this means we can kick over to, to, to D'Angelo. Now, I, I, this is like... Well, I don't know if by the time this is published, this will already be out because Ramon Mason and I, we've been we've been trying to write, but Lord knows everything's been getting in our way. So we're writing a, a, a third chop session on why D'Angelo is not a CRT scholar. And I want to start here. Uh, this is, in fact, how we're starting in our piece. Some people think that if you're a, a whiteness scholar or whiteness studies scholar, you're a CRT scholar. That's not true. So critical whiteness studies slash whiteness studies is its own discipline slash movement. Right. And it especially is drawing upon a range of historians. So people like David Rodiger, for example, Matthew Fry Jacobson. Um, you think about Alexander Sexton. You think about um, what's Alan's first name, Hermano Mason? I've just blanked on it. Theodore, Theodore Allen, Theodore, Theodore Allen. Allen. There we there go, go. <laughs> my bad. Um, so they're, they're talking about the history. They are, from a perspective of history, thinking about the construction of whiteness in the United States. And they're drawing on authors like W.E.B. Du Bois. They're thinking about Du Bois's 1935 book, uh, Black Reconstruction in the United States, where Du Bois talks about the psychological wage that comes with being white, why it is that even poor whites that are constantly being exploited, given the economic systems that are prevalent in the North or the South, are still willing to vote against what would be better for them and say like, yeah, but I, I'm white like they're white. Mm. So, you, I mean, you can think about somebody like President Trump, like, I'm your guy. And you're like, well, yeah, you're racialized white, but in what other sense do you all have much in common? Right, right. Because right. he's, he's telling people that are poor folks from Appalachia, they're catching hell. Right. You and know, they're, they're in the Rust yeah. Belt. He, that's, that's not Trump's land. Right, that's right. not Trump's people. It, you know, yeah, they're good, they're most likely to vote for him. But these are, in, in fact, the kinds of points that that um, that the boys is going to, he, he's going to be thinking about, you're going to get somebody like James Baldwin, who's thinking about the, the ways in which visions of whiteness get cast, et cetera. Now, let me pause here and say this. Um, Discussions about whiteness are not exclusive to the United States. Again, if you pay attention to places all throughout Latin America, they're talking about the range of visions of whiteness, the Iberian visions of whiteness. What do the Portuguese think? What do the Spanish think? How do the Creoles that end up being the oligarchs in places, what do they think about whiteness? Why is, do we have all these colors, these problems with colorism? Why is there so much anti-blackness? Why is there so much anti-Chinese rhetoric? So much anti-Asian rhetoric in general, et cetera. Right? So you have sisters and brothers in the church that have been thinking about these things for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So I just want to pause and make sure that, again, we're doing justice to global theology. We're doing justice to, to majority world theology. Now kicking back into whiteness studies. In the 90s in particular, 1990, you get a surge of publications. And except for two scholars, Ian Haney Lopez, who writes in, in 96, White by Law, and um, Cheryl Harris, 
she writes whiteness property. And those two pieces do get used by whiteness studies scholars, but they, they're, they're kind of brought in, but they're still seen as, oh yeah, no, we can learn from these CRT people, but we're doing our own stuff. Right. And, and I, I stress that because when D'Angelo says, I'm a critical whiteness studies person, one of the things she's saying is, I'm part of this movement that has a different genealogy, that has different members, has a different canon, et cetera. I'm not identifying as a CRT scholar. Right. And the whiteness, the critical whiteness folks, the whiteness studies folks, they'll do this all the time. They're like, yeah, sure. I mean, we might have a little bit of cross-pollination, but we're not CRT. Right. We're, for the most part, trains historians trying to think about the history of the construction of whiteness. How is it, for example, that you, even though Irish people are seen as white in some senses, they're routinely racialized as if they're white, they're barely white, actually close mm. to the black sort of things. Mm. Why is it that in the early 1920s, one of the biggest concerns from the eugenicists that are also in power is how to keep what they're calling out the undesirable white races, plural, from southeastern uh, Europe out of the country. Mm. They don't want the Irish. They don't want the. They don't want. They, they don't want the Poles. They don't want the Italians. They don't want Sicilians, etc. And in fact, one of the things that you'll find, even if you read Du Bois, is discussions about how Italians and Irish people are lynched. And they're lynched in wow. part because it's like, yeah, no, you're not really white. And there's even a case in Alabama where there was a, was a black brother and a Sicilian sister have sexual relations. And at this point, there were anti-misinigation laws uh -huh. in, in Alabama. So you're not supposed to be having sexual relations. And the court says, well, we can't determine if the Sicilian sister is white. Because, wow. you, right, because uh, the, the, the right? Sicilian thing hasn't been labeled as white necessarily. Exactly, right. right? It hasn't been brought into the visions of whiteness. So um, my point is, those are the kinds of things that whiteness studies scholars are thinking about. How do we get to a point where, for example, Caucasian becomes this dominant category in the United States rather than Anglo-Saxonism? Mm. It's a huge shift. If you're reading 19th century literature in the United States, Anglo-Saxonism is seen to be pure whiteness. That's what we all want to go after. But once you get to like the 1950s in the United States, there's a switch to the category Caucasian. And the question is, well, who gets to be lumped under Caucasian and who doesn't? So there again, this is what white critical studies scholars are tracking. Right. And now I want to say I want to say this. When we read somebody like D'Angelo, and I'm just going to talk about white fragility and then I'll kick it back to you, Hermano Mason, to, 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 to add some of the, the pieces that you've recently been reading by, by D'Angelo, what, what's one of the things you find? Just like with Kendi, almost no engagement with critical race theorists. You know, at like at white fragility, she cites three people that are critical race theorists. Two that are critical race theorists proper, Cheryl Harris and and um and in fact, she doesn't even cite, she mentions by name Kimberly Crenshaw and then doesn't cite, <laughs> doesn't cite her work, doesn't engage it. And then one that's uh, a CRT and edu education guy, uh, Zeus Leonardo. And, and and she gives one one or two quotations from him and that's it. Like That's the engagement with critical race theory. Instead, what she's doing is engaging critical whiteness studies from history. She's engaging reflections on whiteness in sociology and in psychology, but she's not engaging CRT. So in her most well-read book, in her most best, you know, in her best known book, there's just about no engagement with CRT. Contrast that with any actual CRT scholar, where it's just, it's loads and loads of footnotes. It's an intentional framing within the CRT tradition. You don't find that, mm -hmm. like you don't find it with Kendi, because that's not her training. That's not the tradition she's trying to identify. And I'll kick this to you, Hermano. She's in fact trying to do something new. She's trying to do critical social justice, mm. which is connected to some of these white critical studies, but it's also importantly different. Hermano Mason, you mind chopping that up for a little bit? Well, going back to what you said, even if you go back and read through through all of her academic essays that she's published, as I've been doing recently since we're writing, it's there 
even less mention of people like Crenshaw appears nowhere. Derek Bell is non-existent. In her newest book, she mentions Derek Bell as an influence, right? Mm -hmm. In the introduction, when she's sort of giving an apologetic for, you know, why a white person can, you know, write on these topics, right? Um, But all throughout her work, I look through maybe 15 different articles in, in academic journals. She never mentions critical race theory. She never mentions Derek Bell. She doesn't mention Crenshaw even in those articles. Um, by and large, it's just clear to me she's doing something different. And then if, uh, if you look into the Is Everyone Really Equal book, then she says we're doing critical social justice, right? Which is a term that, that her and Sensoy seem to have developed because the only earlier place that I find it is in an article that they wrote together. And, and the, the point of that article was actually to teach whiteness studies to educators within the university context, right? So they're, they're trying to give a strategy for how to approach it within the university context. And they're calling this whole thing that they're working on critical social justice even there. And, and critical social justice is defined in the book as you know social justice informed by critical theory, right, of the European brand, because she definitely talks about Frankfurt and mm-hmm. such, um, meaning that you're going to, you know, dig deeper. It's, it's a more radical critique that looks to uh, the, the level of socialization of whiteness rather than just, uh, obviously, individual prejudice or even structural racism, but more, almost all of our emphasis is on socialization in and I would add into that if like if we go back to when you're talking about Cheryl Harris's piece, right, whiteness as property, you can see like that when Cheryl Harris writes it, she's working up to a, an affirmative action argument. Mm-hmm, right. And mm-hmm. she, she's making a legal case here. She's saying that, OK, whiteness um, has been uh, has been constructed and is protected as a property right, as a matter of fact. Right. She, right, she's not spitballing. She's just saying, here, here's what property rights are in the United States. It goes through all different types of theories of what property <laughs> is, right, copiously page by page, I don't yeah. know, 60 pages of that, and, and says, so, so whiteness is a property in the United States. Okay, so how do we, how do we change that so that um, it, it no longer, you know, functions as a subordinating property right within the United States. And she talks about affirmative action can be better understood in light of treating whiteness as a property. So it's a legal discussion, a legal transaction, and, and it's a policy suggestion, yes. right? Within yep. the legal form. And then when you see it appear in D'Angelo, it pops up, what is whiteness? Well, Cheryl Harris wrote on uh, uh, whiteness as property. Yep. And so what is whiteness as property? Oh, it's that Americans, you know, feel that, that they have something when they have whiteness that that gives them um, privilege and, and gives them advantage mm-hmm. and gives them psychological this and that. But you can see that's like a totally different perspective, right? Like it's yanked from its actual context. We're no longer talking about law and policy. Now we're, we're talking about psychology and sociology right. and, and how I feel about myself and how that makes me feel about other thing, people and, and like, what can I know and what can't I know as a person socialized into whiteness, having that property, putting value. She's talking about me putting value in that, but that's not about me putting value about in that. It's about the law putting value in mm-hmm. that. Is that so it's like, even though we're using the same person and we're using uh, the same, some of the same quotes, it's an entirely different perspective and an approach to the subject matter, right. which I think pushes them. 
Yeah, preach, and, brother, preach. And I know we've talked a lot, but I think that's what Nathan and I can do best is just talk. No, talk, that's good. Talk. No, I, I, I'm, <laughs> that's I'm what glad. we want you to do. Because, because one of the things that I want is I want this to be thorough and clear for those who, you know, for for the culture war discussion, right? Um, and And because I feel like you guys have always been thorough and always been clear several times, right? But I want this to be, I want this to be something that we have in time, yeah. right? And I definitely want us to 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 you know to engage what is happening in the culture war as far as the the misrepresentations or the misunderstandings because I think that it is important to have that kind of corrective. And not only that, but there are people that really want to learn. The the I think that we have. Because all, all of us engage with so many folks within the culture war, it feels like that's all there is. But when 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 me um, and KB engage with a lot of folks, especially folks that listen to the podcast, folks are like, man, we really want to learn. We want to learn what is CRT. We want to learn the differences between why why is it that people keep mentioning D'Angelo? Why is it that people keep mentioning Kendi? You know, uh, why do what wh- what is this whole thing with them tying CRT to Marx to Marx? Is it Marxism? Right, like these are the kind of things that people are trying to learn, right? And and so I want to give this information to those who are dedicated to honest dialogue. I don't want to really pay much attention to those who are committed to willful ignorance um, and committed to uh, misrepresenting on purpose. I want to give this to folks who really are seeking to learn and know and understand, so that they can also be involved, right? And then that they can also yeah. have an understanding and love. Um, our neighbors well who are in these disciplines because me and KB talked about that in a, in, a, in a past episode is do you guys actually even want to see these folks that are in these uh, these these uh, these academic disciplines uh, come to even know the Lord if they don't you know what I'm saying not, not that all of them don't but the, those who do do you want them to you know what I'm saying so I think that part of that is us treating them charitably which is us treating their work charitably and I'm glad that you guys do that and that's what we want to promote here um, did you have something that you wanted to go in? Well, I wanted to spend the rest of our time addressing the culture war directly. I think that we've done, um, I think we've done a, a lot of work in terms of helping people to sift through what it is we're actually talking about. Now, I, I just would love for you all to speak directly to some of the claims that are being made in the scope of how it's being talked about, you know, politically and, and culturally. Uh, I wanna I wanna play a clip for y'all and uh and get you to respond to it. So this is conservative commentator Liz Wheeler, um, who it has uh is sort of one of the new voices to to kind of uh lead this charge to rid the nation of critical race theory so that things can return back to how they were, which was good, I, I'm supposing. <laughs> uh so um so here's Liz on Mark Lamont Hill's show. Black News Tonight. tonight. Uh, here she is. If you trace the history of critical race theory back to where it originated, if you take it uh, not just to critical legal studies, but all the way back to critical theory, um, which is a theory that was created at the Frankfurt School by Marxists at the Frankfurt School back in the 1930s, um, you see that this isn't really a perspective on history. This isn't really a theory at all. It's actually a tactic used to, uh, with the intention at least, to start a Marxist revolution. But instead of Karl Marx's vision of a worker-led revolution, those adherents to critical race theory uh, teach a sort of racialism to use racial minorities in our country 
uh, as a vanguard to spark a, a Marxist revolution here in our country. They do that, as the name would suggest, critical theory, by relentless criticism of the institutions in our country, hoping to undermine them, tear them down, so that they can replace them with Marxist institutions instead. That's, that's the history, that's the reality of critical race theory, and it seems that a lot of people on the other side of the aisle, yourself included, I believe, uh, portray critical race theory as just being a perspective on history or um, teaching, you know, the not so good parts of the history of the United States. But you're missing <laughs> the so very good. big part, the fundamental part of critical race theory. And that is the fact that it's essentially Marxism. Okay. Guys, critical race theory is Marxism. <laughs> and it is an attempt to undermine God's favorite country <laughs> and make it into something that is divided. How do you respond to that? Brother Mason, you look like you were eager. Yeah. So I'm gonna let Go you ahead, first, Brother Mason. <laughs> My blood pressure starts going up. <laughs> you know, I should know what's coming, but so frustrating. And then when it starts to compound, when you're like, okay, we can deal with that point. And then another one's instantly piled on. That's just <laughs> another one is instantly piled on that. Then you start, ah, I think that's how they win, is they just wear out it. When he, yeah, you know, like I have to answer every, 40 things that were wrong with that within the time that I have left. <laughs> wow. Like, that itself is a tactic. But yeah. I would if just to maybe kick off the discussion. Um, it's one of the reasons I like to include when I define critical race theory, that it's this the traditional abolitionist and civil rights discourse critically transformed. Right. I like to put it in that presentation because the Frankfurt School could have cared less about any of these things that critical race theorists are talking about. And, and second, one of the, the very reasons that critical race theory exists is because they, they disagreed with a lot of traditional critical theory and postmodernism, post-structuralism as found within critical legal studies because their commitment was to the civil rights tradition, right? So, so they, they couldn't talk in these abstract terms. They couldn't just be simple deconstructionist, you know, breaking down language all the time. They couldn't just oppose rights just because, you know, rights are, are give a false consciousness of freedom to the population mm. because they lived in need of such rights and mm. their, their parents were able to, to eat and have somewhere to live and, and you know, had, uh, had actual experience of, of receiving a benefit from those rights. So I, I, to me, it's, immediately absurd to try to place critical race theory as just like within a long line that goes back to Frankfurt. No, what we're talking about is civil rights activists who have come to see that the, the laws, while, while granting formal equality or doing nothing about the actual circumstances that their people are living in, right? Mm. And, and trying to get beneath those laws to see why. And then and then discovering through, with the help of critical legal studies for a lot of that first generation, developing and receiving some tools of critique in order to, to go into the law and see how within the law can it carry, you know, uh, racial meaning or, or subordinating language or, or, or uh, support structures that oppose the very words that are being used in the legislation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so 
the simple borrowing and application of some of those tools in order to deconstruct, in order to begin a project of liberation in the civil rights tradition is what they were up to. They, Frankfurt, on the other hand, was doing something entirely different. They weren't particularly concerned about civil rights. They weren't particularly concerned about women or you know any of the other things that you're going to find in intersectionality. So, so I think that this is a constant mistake that if you if you borrow an aspect of a tool, right? And I say an aspect of a tool because they didn't even straight borrow the tools of critical theory because they critiqued those tools as much when they used them as they did use them. Mm. Um, is then translated into, oh, you're just part of that tradition. Oh, you're just born out of that tradition. So it would be like anyone in Christianity, uh, you know, maybe using something from Aristotle, right? Mm-hmm. In the, the third, fourth century of the church and then saying, oh, so Christianity comes from Aristotle. Right. It's just Aristotelian. Yeah. Like it's so dumb on its face and it's so risible because you can just go and read them tell you exactly what they're doing, yeah. what, what they believe, where they come from. Just read, read Robert Williams taking rights aggressively. And all of that should just evaporate out of her mind in an instant. If she could just sit down and read that for 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah. Right. right. So that first piece to me is just absurd. And I'll pass to Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. So hermanos, I got a, I got a lot of thoughts. Yeah. I got a lot of thoughts and I, I want to start here. Uh, I'm thinking about a theme that, that Hermano Amin, you've mentioned about not wanting to engage certain people that are committed to ignorance, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I hear you, but I, I want to take a slightly different tact. Go ahead. I want us to see that one of the acts of mercy is teaching. Mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas says this in his wow. discussion of mercy in the Summa Theologiae. <laughs> one hard. of the acts of mercy is teaching. Watch out, brothers. You know, once you start studying these medievals, it change your life. <laughs> so, yeah, these dead Dominicans in particular, they got some words for us today. So, so Aquinas says that the, the act of teaching helps to address the evil, hear that, the evil, the lack of good that comes from ignorance. Mm. Comes from ignorance. And here's why I'm saying this. Because we would fail to love all our neighbors if we did not bring back a key point that critical race theory stress, and that is historical consciousness, mm. historical awareness, mm-hmm. knowing where you fit in the long line of, say, your nation's history. Now, here's one of the things that happens once you become more historically aware. When we talk about things like whiteness as property, for example, going back to Cheryl Harris, well, guess what's one of the things you'll learn? You learned that in 1790, the United States passes its very first Naturalization Citizenship Act that says only white persons of good character living in the United States for two years can become citizens, only white people. This is connected to a vision of making what what's, uh, Iberian scholar, so the, uh, the scholar of, of Iberia and efforts of the church uh, to promote imperial expansion, uh, C.B. Boxer calls a pigmentocracy. Mm. The, United States was, the United States is intentionally designed by people like Jefferson, Washington, Adams, etc., uh, Franklin, to be a government for and by white people. So think about all of the rights that come with being a citizen, all the privileges that come with being a citizen. Those are only given to those that are seen as white. Now, notice that also means one of the things that's going on is when you look at laws in places like Virginia, the presumptions about who could be free and who's going to be enslaved, who could be property, who could own property. Mm. Where the presumption is racialized whites and indigenous people, they're free, racialized blacks, your slaves. If you're racialized white, you can own slaves. 
If you're an indigenous sister or brother, okay, maybe, but probably not because we think you're barbarous, heathen, blah, 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 blah. Now, I'm, I'm situating that because one of the things that you're going to get when you get to, for example, David Walker's appeal in the 1830s, he's saying, oh, my goodness, look at these nasty systems of white supremacy and racism and chattel slavery. Now, the brother has some, some heinously racist ideas, even about black intelligence, for example, mm -hmm. and about black Africa. So we got, we got to be bearing witness to the whole of the truth. But he's going, no, these are huge problems. We need to have most liberation. Pick up that point. So you get a systemic, institutional, structural-wide critique from somebody like David Walker, who's informed by people like the right Reverend Richard Allen. That's one of the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? So like these are old Christian discussions. Guess what happens? We get back to those Christian discussions in the 1850s. As you're moving closer and closer to the potential of a civil war, you're going to find people like the renowned Southern Presbyterian James Henley Thornwell saying, all these abolitionists are, you ready? Communists. Mm. They're all communists trying to overthrow our institutions and our mode of government. And for him, that have been providentially ordered and set in place. Wow. Mm. Now, here's something else that goes on. Sounds familiar. One of the things that happens when you're getting the civil rights movement, and you can see this if you go and look at um, clips of films that the Birch Society did. Birch Society is highly racist, trying to, to maintain the pigmentocracy, even in the face of desegregation. What do you find them saying? People like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King are just communists. Mm. And I'm going to be honest now, because we got to go into this. What you're going to find once you study this is deep modes of anti-Semitism. Wow. Why do you think the Frankfurt School, with all these Jewish brothers, is constantly getting railed against yeah. by other German scholars, right? Why is it getting railed against in any effort to see what it would look like in the United States. You find them talking about cultural Judaism, cultural Bolshevikism, right? This is what's going on. And they'll say, that, no, no, what we have are people from places like Russia or Eastern Europe, uh, East, East Germany. They're, they're trying to infiltrate the United States. They're giving ideas to these, to these, and they would say Negroes like Reverend King, that he's oppressed when he's clearly not. And now he's taking this and he's trying to spark the Marxist revolution. <laughs> Brothers, this is what I'm saying. Like, once you actually study history, it's the same themes over and it's over crazy. again, right? It's this constant wedding of anti-Semitism and, 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 the, and the kinds of structural critiques that are coming from Jewish sisters and brothers with the kinds of ways that you're going to see echoes or similarities and the kinds of critiques that are coming from King, for example, and beyond Vietnam or King. Where do we go from here? Where he's saying, my goodness, look at the power, racial power difference. Look at the ways in which we're having militarism, racism, and commercialism wed together within the white empire, which is the United States, causing all sorts of havoc all over the place. All that gets labeled, oh, that's just Marxism. Mm. Yep. So my, my point to, to, to Hermano Mason's point is, actually, once you know some of these histories of abolition, once you know the histories of the civil rights rhetoric, guess what you're expecting? That exact line of reasoning. Wow. That's just Marxism. That's yeah. just Frankfurt School. That's, that's connected to these people who just want to overthrow everything. Now, now because it's going to be a kind of colorblind approach to it, we don't want to acknowledge that long history of championing those ideas connected to anti-Semitism. Mm. No, we'll just pretend that doesn't exist. But again, I'm telling y'all, if you go and watch some of the Birch Society clips on the civil rights movement, they're telling you this is nothing but Marxist revolution. These, these, these poor racialized minority sisters and brothers, they've been completely duped by these Jewish sisters and brothers. And now, now we're going to have chaos. Now, let me, let me, let me go in a little bit on wow. Marxism. Y'all, you said we had time. No, so we I'm, do. I'm, go I'm, ahead. I'm taking you, right? I'm taking you at your word. So let, let, let's start here. Marx is an Aryan white supremacist. Hold on, hold on, wait now, wait now, hold on now. Karl Marx, we're talking about Karl, old Karl, right? Old Karl. 
Carl Jr. So Carl is an Aryan white supremacist. Yep, he's a white supremacist who doesn't ever want to center race analysis. He wants to center class analysis. Mm. Right. And he's going to contend that reflections on race, for example, are distractions. But he's also going to be informed by somebody like Hegel, who's going to say there is pretty much no history to be learned from the entire continent of Africa. What you have to see is there is not only within the German academy profound forms of anti-Semitism, but there are profound forms of anti-blackness, anti-Asian ideas. This is all this is all part and parcel of the air that they're breathing. So now here's what's so key. So Marx. He's got racist ideas. He just wants to talk about class. But what's going to happen? You're going to get certain African-American sisters and brothers in the United States in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that are going to engage Marx. So you're going to see a Du Bois engaging Marx. Mm -hmm. You're you're going to see a C.L.R. James engaging Marx. And guess what you find? This is what's known as the Black radical tradition that uh, Cedric Robinson talks about in the book Black Marxism. All of these scholars do very similar things to what, what Hermano Mason said Christians were doing with Platonism, Neoplatonism, Aristotelianism. They're saying, okay, hold on, Marx. Let's see, what do you have to teach us that's good, right, true, and beautiful? And one of the things that you have to say that are just heinously wrong. Right. And we don't want to endorse them at all. So what you get in, for example, Black Reconstruction is a profound subversion of Marxist ideas about how revolutions would work. Because what, what Du Bois is saying is, there's no way Marx can foresee that African chattel slaves are going to play a key role, not only in promoting and, and, and executing a civil war, but changing the entire global dynamics. Mm. Like they can't really see the Haitian revolution, for example. Right. right? So these are the kinds of points that you're going to find the black radical tradition saying. So it's like, yeah, okay, we need some of the ideas that you have about class analysis, some of the ideas that you're going to have about alienation or exploitation, but we're critiquing these in profound ways. And so it's like big sweeping ways, but also nuanced ways. Here's one of the reasons I mentioned all that. Because the founder of critical race theory is is Derrick Bell. And Derrick Bell flat out says, I didn't spend any time reading Marx. I didn't spend any time reading the Frankfurt School. What I did is studied Black scholars like Du Bois, and I paid attention to Black activist scholars like Paul Robinson. Wow. I'm listening to them. So here's what I'm saying. Does, is there any sense in which Marx's ideas get to Bell? Sure, but it's indirectly. It's filtered through the Black radical tradition and filtered through because because Bell was he was born he was baptized in the AME. He was he was a proud member of at one point a Black Presbyterian church. It's it's filtered through various Black ecclesiastical traditions wow. too. Right. So say so that. so Bell's like no that's that's just not my work. And now here's something that's very <sighs> important because you get a strain of critical race theorists who are like we're so tired of people trying to hoist on Eurocentric debates like postmodernism versus modernism. How exactly do we relate to their Frankfurt School? They're saying, no, will you at least listen to our people? Will you listen to the work of a, of a Du Bois? Will you listen to the work of a CLR James? And will you love us enough to make an extended stay in those texts? Mm. Do them justice. Now, you see what, what happens, though, is that does, not only does that point about Bell get chucked to the side, but let's talk about those that do more. And critically engage the Frankfurt School, like Robert A. Williams, who Hermano Mason mentioned earlier. Williams is coming from indigenous traditions. He's informed by the Red Power Movement. He's, in, he's, a, he's been a member of the Lumbi tribe. He's a member of a tribe that is still to this day not even federally recognized. Mm. He knows about colonialism and settler colonialism. He knows about whiteness and law. And one of the things he says is, as one that's part of a colonized, oppressed, exploited people, I'm looking to other peoples that are colonized, oppressed, exploited, and seeing what are methods and insights that I could learn from you. So he's going to be reading 
people from the Frankfurt School. He's going to be reading a Walter Benjamin, for example, but he's also going to be reading post-colonial scholars like Edward Said, Homi Baba. And here's one of the things he says. He's like, all these people have things I have to learn from them and all these people have things I'm going to reject. Right. So again, I, I'm saying this because final point, not only do we need to be reading the history, but as we do what Christians were championing, especially Protestants were championing at the time of the Reformation, we do ad fontes. We go back to the founts and we do it with an eye to loving God and neighbor by just reading practices, by just reasoning practices. Guess what we find? It's complicado. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Ooh. And that's precisely what we should si expect. Claro, papi. And, you know, I'm trying. But I'm trying. <laughs> so, so, you know, this is this is, a, I know, a longer answer to this point, but no. especially if your audience is like, could we get some help in here? These are the kinds of points that you would that they need to hear. And, and again, especially I want to highlight that anti-Semitic point. Just go and listen to that bird society. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this is like part two or three. Wow. Frankfurt School. What, what was the number one thing? Why, why is there a Frankfurt School? Is it because they agreed with everything Mark said? No, yeah, it's, ex it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, and then what was their number one goal? To create totalitarian dictatorships? <laughs> no. Right? Right. Or to do the cultural work to end all totalitarian dictatorships. Right. You know, that's absurd on its face. Like, Frankfurt School, in order to overthrow civilization and set up a totalitarian dictatorship, Huh? Right. That, that's like a contradiction in terms. Yeah. It's like that opposite of what they were trying to do and what they wrote about. So that's even precisely that, right. So that, that's why you, why, what is it about them that um, it's, I guess, the little bit of the Marxist language plus the Jewishness, I guess that, that's got to be the only reason you could go there. And then another weird thing when I'm listening to you talk is about Marxism itself. It's, there's almost like a, a cootyism, you know, connected with Marxism. If there's a piece of Marxism, then the whole Marxist disease arrives, you know, immediately. <laughs> right. After. And they've tried to cover what is really just a cootyism with the language of worldviews, right? That's to me when I hear, oh, it's a worldview. So if you take a piece, then you've got a whole new worldview. And that's just cootyism, right? It's anti-intellectual. Mm. It's nothing. It, uh, the only way when you start to talk about, uh, oh, yeah, you believe a little piece of this and you adopt the whole worldview is is literally just like catching cooties in the schoolyard. I don't think there's any more depth to it yeah. than that. And most. Yeah, really, especially if you begin to press on it. Yeah, because for me, especially with Marxism. Right. There's some central things that make Marx Marx and make Marxism Marxism. Right. And and. and Nathan was pointing out one of those is the class essentialism, right? A class struggle. What is a Marxism without a class struggle, right? As the primary interpretive framework for everything else. And you see this all throughout history. This is why Marxists, many of them, especially Orthodox Marxists, can't stand critical race theory or, you know, or even had problems with much of the civil rights movement and everything else is because, no, 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 the racial issue is just a product of the class issue. Yeah. Everything has to be interpreted. That If you're going to be a Marxist, you got to at least start there. And then a second thing that is when critical race theory is even born, right, or coming to be, uh, one of the early disputes is with legal instrumentalism yep. in general, right? right? So, so they're saying, no, 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 it's wrong to say that, that law is just an, an instrument of the bourgeoisie, right? Yep that it just is created to serve their interests, right? Because that's circular. Right. Because what they're saying is law creates the bourgeoisie as well, mm. right? So it can't be the product 
of the bourgeoisie in order to enforce bourgeois values because it itself is defining the types of property relationships and capitalist system and everything else that creates the bourgeoisie. So, so we reject that instrumentalism. And then early on, the critical legal scholars were saying, but wait a minute, you and CRT, and this is like, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you and CRT, you've just re put race in place of class. So that's the argument we're hearing. That argument's already been had. That mm. argument is old and boring and done, mm. or at least it should be. OK, and then, so they say you just put you just put race in place of class. Now you're saying you're saying that the critics say that the critics say you the reason that you guys are Marxist is because you're just replacing what Marx said about class with race, but keeping everything the critical, else. Critical legal studies scholars were saying. Yes. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Mark Tushnet and others yep. they were making that argument that that critical legal study says we've successfully made the case that legal instrumentalism is is false. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's their critique of Marx. They, they were able to, in a sense, chart a, a, a left legal approach that didn't include a basic aspect of Marxism, right? right. Because they found a problem there. Not because they hated Marx, right. you know, right. from it in many of their cases, but, but that's a major difference, especially when you're going to be doing law. If you're not illegal, if, if, the, if the law is not understood as an instrument to serve the bourgeoisie, you're not a, you're not a Marxist right. in legal theory, mm -hmm. right? You're, at least you're terrible at it. So, and then, so then you have critical race theorists, early ones, or race crits, as they were probably called at the time, right? They're at these conventions and they're like, well, at critical legal studies conventions, well, we need to talk more about race. And they're like, why do we need to talk about race? Well, because race is also central to, you know, how the law has been created and the law has constructed race. And, and so then the critique, I think, came from, you know, personal discomfort of being called a white organization, critical legal studies started pushing back, oh, wait a minute, you're you're just mow-mowing, you're just doing what, uh, you know, the same thing the Marxists did. You're saying, instead of class, you should put race there. So now, now the law is just a legal instrument of the, of the dominant race mm. to enforce their value. So you're doing the same thing Marx did, that's racialism. And, you know, so that becomes their critique. They're, they're taking the very critique they use against Marx himself, now they're turning it against uh, critical legal uh, theorists. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then the early race crits response was not to, to agree or say, yeah, it's better this way, but was to object to the very idea of anything taking that role. Mm. Right. This is where the anti-essentialism comes in. No, it's not. It's not that law is a servant of class and it's not that law is a servant of race and law isn't a servant of gender. Even it's that law is basic in constructing all of those identities, mm -hmm. right? So you can't disentangle them. And so what this strikes at in Marxism is a basic concept in Marx is the base superstructure concept, right? right? So the, the means and modes of, pr of production, um, right, determine everything else. Right. They, they determine law, they determine philosophy, they determine mathematics, right? You know, even, even the advancements of mathematics are a result of capitalism because now you're using money and banking systems in a different way that lead into, you know, everything starts with the, mo the means and mode of production. Mm -hmm. So that's the base. And then all the ideology, even religion, everything else in that is a product of, of how you're producing. The basic thing is how you're producing. Therefore, the class struggle is central to driving all of the other ideologies within the social structure um, or the superstructure. And so, 
So if we go back then to this debate between CLS and CRT, or early race crits, as they were called at the time, is, is that they're saying there is no such thing as that base superstructure paradigm, because none of those things are essential, right? Or essentialists, meaning neither race nor class is something that just exists in the world apart from minds and apart from law. It's not something discovered and we learned its properties, right? It's rather the legal system and, and our social relations actually produce those things and their meanings and their interrelations and they continue to change and we continue to inform them, right? So they're, so that's, that's a repudiation of Marxism broadly from the right? There's no Marxist analysis left if there's no uh, class dialectic at the, at the base of it and then there's no base superstructure paradigm. All you're left with from Marx is, you know, more of the critical uh, sociological tradition or, or the, the, the more general concept of that, that, um, that, that problems that you see in society aren't necessarily like conscious productions of people doing bad things, but rather could be some underlying systems and ways of thinking that, you know, aren't even the target of the discussion that can be leading to that, right? And we can understand this. All of us can understand that, that right now, if we really wanted to be critically reflective, we can see how capitalism itself has built into this notion of like commodifying everything, you know, mm, including right. human beings commodification mm. of sexuality, commodification of childhood versus adulthood, everything is saleable in some way. That, that's what the capitalist culture has, has brought to us. And, and that's a good subject for sociological critique to see, hmm, how is that informing my behaviors and the way that I think about the world? Because that's the mode of production that I live in, right? That's not instantiating Marxism. Marxism is a specific answer, right? right? It right. is a full system. And I don't need any of that to have the thought that I just had. And, and it's that those type of things that have come into sociology and have been adopted by, you know, a lot of modern theorists. And so to go back to say all this was that the argument about racialism or just replacing uh, class with race and carrying out the same Marxist program, that argument was had in what? would you say 88, 89, yeah, 90, exactly right. and it was pretty much done. And then when you bring in uh, uh, demarginalizing, demarginalizing the intersection of class and race, well, then it's just over, right? right? <laughs> I mean, the hardest thing after that is just to really discuss like um, essentialism versus vulgar, uh, vulgar essentialism, right? Mm -hmm. How we're going to understand this. It's, we're all agreed that we're not doing a base superstructure thing and we're not making doing race essentialism, right. especially after intersection intersection intersectionality now the discussion becomes like how do we how do we have a, a stable identity for people groups in order to to uh to engage politically right that's a separate discussion that's not racialism that's not essentialism that's not marxism it's a discussion that's good and should be had and there's different approaches for you know different topics um but that that's a whole other thing yeah. you know identity mm -hmm. and such but that just wanted to throw that on top to yeah. say it's good. i can give you a couple articles that you can go back and read and you can solve this problem in your mind pretty quickly <laughs> right. about Marxism, right. I would think. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I say two final things and we can move to the next topic? For sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so one is this. I think it's very important as we're trying to promote historical awareness to make sure the audience knows that Hitler learned a lot about legal structures from the United States. Yep. Mm, he studied our Jim and Jane Crow segregation models mm -hmm. and tries to implement them in Nazi Germany. He mm -hmm. also 
gave careful attention to our eugenics programs. He's infamous for saying that he thought that Madison Grant's book, The Passing of the Great Race, which is is this, this, you know, it's a it's a it's a Jeremiah about how terrible it's going to be that the Anglo-Saxon race is coming to an end. He's like, oh, yeah, that was that's my Bible. Wow. And it's important to know that Madison Grant played a central role in determining which white races could immigrate and become naturalized in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right, so you got profound connections going on to these points. But now I want to say one other thing, because this is very easy to miss. Notice that Hermano Mason is saying these debates about how CRT does or doesn't relate to Marxism were happening within liberal, secular institutions amongst those that are deemed leftists. <laughs> the CRT movement is taking place in the Harvards and the and the Wisconsin law schools of the world, the Berkeleys of the world. And I'm stressing this because it's very important for us to see that the CRT scholars are not saying leftists get it all right. These conservative people are just backwards. They don't understand anything. Else. Right. No, the bulk of their critiques in the beginning are coming against those who see themselves as really down with the struggle mm. while they're racialized white and supposedly political and in various senses, politically progressive. And the CRTs are going like, but how come you won't let us talk about race? And how come you won't think about the ways in which your, your racialization history is shaping how you do or do not relate to Marx, do right. or not relate to ideas about rights. So they're like, my goodness, if we're looking at indigenous scholars, if we're looking at Hawaiian scholars, if we're going to look at Chicano, Chicana scholars, all of them are talking about the importance of rights, rhetoric and rights. And you're saying, no, all of that is just to be duped <laughs> by, by a kind of false consciousness. Right. And, 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 this, and the CRT scholars like, no, that's that's wrong. So again, I want to stress that these initial debates and the ways that they're even continuing now are not about a left versus right vision. It's actually profound critique of the very institutions that would like to brag about how yeah. down they are with the struggle, how much they want to promote, you know, desegregation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Crenshaw's what, 1988 article, Race Reform and Retrenchment. Yep. How is that structured? There's two targets for her discussion, exactly. right? Yep. The new right and the new left. Yep, exactly. Yep. Critiquing both. Yep, that's, yep. that's the direction coming from. Yep. Um, so she's critiquing people like Thomas Sowell, Thomas she calls Sowell. the new right. And she's mm-hmm. critiquing people like even Alan Freeman, which she's seeing as part of the new left. You're exactly right. Yep. yep. It's both in there. To your point also about the Hitler thing, there's a great book for the audience to get Hitler's American model, uh, the United States and the making of race Nazi law, which is uh, actually what uh, Nathan was just talking about, that idea of where Hitler um, uh, look to our laws and, and got that got those from one of the more pop th- so there's, there's there's a couple of popular um, sort of uh, charges that are thrown at folks who are fighting for justice these days one is that that equality and equity are two different things uh, Christopher Rufo defines equality as seeking to protect individual rights regardless of race but he defines equity is it seeks to divide the world into competing racial groups and ensure... <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, but, that, but to me, that's... I've never... Even if you look up the definition of equity anywhere, that has never been the definition. That is clearly his own characterization. Oh, oh no. But finish it, Wait, but finish said, it. I'm sorry. He said equity, equity seeks to divide the world into competing racial groups and ensure race-based equality of outcomes, endorsing active racial discrimination to get there. I don't know if we should even... 
Yeah, because I, I, because I'm, that's poisoning the well. It's like saying <laughs> that's, that's like saying, well, you know, atheism is defined by those who may not believe that there is a God, et cetera, et cetera. But Christianity is those who believe in an imaginary sky daddy named Jesus <laughs> who died on. A, it's it's you're poisoning the well sky of the definition right. before you even get to it. So it's it's. Not even. I'm gonna give you all both two minutes to respond to that. <laughs> Go ahead, Hermano Mason. Uh, that's hilarious. So I'm going to try to be in two minutes. I mean, that's just absurd. But what I would say is there's definitely like two, two strains within anti-discrimination law historically, right? The idea of like uh, a, a freedom of pro- a process, process equality or, or um, formal equality, right? Versus substantive equality, right? So right. There, there is that noise. Like you can create a system um, that, that is has a process equality, meaning it, it's colorblind. It doesn't mention, you know, any particular groups or anything. And, and, and it attempts to just apply the laws equally across the board, right? But then you do have an understanding of equality in terms of the actual circumstances that the people, are they living in subordinated life circumstances right. or not, right? And that's a separate question. And, and you kind of do see that tension throughout throughout legal history. And I think probably, I don't know, Nathan agree or disagree, but at any point in history where we where we were actually reforming, it was very clear in those times that like uh, like the um, like the uh, reconstruction amendments, yeah. right? The, the legislature, the courts made very clear that they were they were trying to to fix what was broken mm. for people cover African-Americans, right? right? The, the, the intention was substantive. So when we talk about equal protection under the law, we didn't mean just equal treatment, right? It meant, it meant uh, assuring that, that, that the subordinated class actually did have real life opportunities, not just the possibility of those opportunities legally. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of Lyndon B. Johnson, right? When the, the speech that he gave or, where he talks about, okay, you know, we've achieved formal equality. It's, it's against the law to discriminate. And so now if we take everyone up to the starting line and we have one group of people that have been in shackles their whole life and we take the shackles off and we put them at the starting line and we squeeze the trigger, the race begins, right? Is that really fair, right? Mm-hmm. Is, that actually, is that actually equality at that point, right? Because what what we as a nation had done for centuries had, you know, was going to make it very difficult for the equality of circumstances to on their own arrive from uh, equality of process. Right. So I do think there is that that debate throughout. And obviously, you know, uh, the right tends to go in one direction, left in, in the other. I don't know if to be charitable, if he was trying to get at something like that tension <laughs> or not. Um but I, but I think very clearly that even especially with critical race theory, you, you would be right in saying that that something that distinguished Bell um, as a theorist was that, you know, uh, that Brown enforcing Brown versus Board of Education and just creating uh, formal laws that require racial mixing wasn't going to make the children's lives better, right. wasn't going to ensure that African-American children had a better education. So so the the measure of uh, a civil rights law should be what is the actual outcome for the disadvantaged people, yeah. not just well, does the process look on paper. Right. It, Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw pointed out, too, that in the the flip side of that is that when when people were trying to put 
things in place to separate people, they were able to determine if those laws were working right. by the outcome. By the outcome. The fact that this this law is causing people to separate, that's how we right. know that the law is working. And she argues that on the flip side, if you try to put in a law that's supposed to remediate, yep. then the way the where you go to see if the thing is working is what it's actually doing in right. the the society. So right. outcomes actually matter. Yeah. Are the conditions of black people being changed by this law or not? If it isn't, then is the law really equal? Right. Yeah. Right. Outcomes are not irrelevant. Yeah, outcomes are not irrelevant at all. Go go ahead, Bradley. I was gonna say, and if you truly believe that that everyone that people groups are equal, they're created equal by God, right? That 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 no people group, uh, no racial category um, has you know higher IQs or is more moral or creates better or worse culture. Like like if you understand that from a biblical anthropological perspective, right? Then outcomes definitely have to be considered as part of the measure of the justness of a policy, mm. right? They're, they're inseparable because, because if you wouldn't expect uh, unequal uh, life circumstances of equal peoples, unless there was something in the distributive structure that mm. was broken down. Mm. Wow. Right. Mm. That's good. Just, I think y'all have hit on so many important points. So I'm going to be very brief. Uh, the first point is, we again have to be historically minded. Mm. We have to ask how, what are the social conditions, the historical conditions in which this law gets passed? (laughs) And it's one thing to say, okay, we've got a law, boom, there it goes. But, but if it's part of, if the laws are part of these broader social realities of, of white supremacy, it's part of this long history of a pigmentocracy. Then one of the questions you have to ask is how likely is it that these laws are going to prove efficacious? And here's another thing. So like, are they going to accomplish what they're, what they're designed to do? That's one part. So what would the enforcement be? But here's the second part. All laws get interpreted. So you could have what on its face looks like it's going to be quite an anti-racist law, but then as it gets interpreted by the courts, this is one of the key points about critical race theories, is it can get completely disempowered. Wow. This point. is one of, you know, so, so you can, you can have people saying like, Alan Freeman is really good on this and his point about anti-discrimination, the ways in which anti-discrimination law actually maintain modes of discrimination. He's saying, look, after you get the, the Griggs case where, where they are paying close attention to disparate impacts or paying close attention to history and to social reality saying like, hold on, hold on, you all are in this historically segregated space. I see what you're up to, et cetera, et cetera. Then there ends up being this shift with, um, uh, uh, Davis. Yes, thank you, Davis. Was like, no, no. All we're going to do now is pay attention to intention, and we have to establish that the intention was racist. It's very, very difficult to establish that, that people are designing things for for racist yes, intent. And this very, brings me to the last hard. thing I want to say. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh my goodness! But 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 here's why this matters so much. Because brothers, what's one of the things that that starts to grow in the late '60s into the '70s? The Southern strategy, mm-hmm. the Lee Atwaters of the world, the Barry Goldwaters of the world. What do they tell us? That the Republican Party intentionally designs itself to be the white man's party. How are they doing it? With dog whistles, yep. coded language. And what kind of laws are they trying to pass? What kind of justices are they appointing, et cetera? Right? So this is part of when you have somebody like Nixon put four justices on that are actually very much down with a lot of what's going on with the Southern strategy. That's one of the reasons you're going to get this move to intent and no, let's not pay attention to broader histories because these are the kinds of power dynamics that are at play. Yeah. So I would, I would encourage 
especially the audience, to, 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 to read about the Southern strategy and to ask, how is it that those, those ideas are being replicated again in, for example, some of the claims that you're going to get from a Ted Cruz, even? Right. It's, it's, it's not like the efforts to be to maintain certain forms of racial power through law within the House of, you know, within within the House or the Senate at the presidency level. Like, no, they're still there. And this brings me then to, to us needing to reflect not only on how you get coded things, how it can be that Lee Atwater is just flat out saying, yeah, we're using coding language so that you can't establish our intent. But we know what we're trying to do. We're trying to maintain white power within the GOP. Wow. How does all that move from a vision of just discrimination to what I would be championing, and that is decolonial work. Mm. How are we going to undo all these nasty histories and legacies and continuing consequences of the kinds of colonial chaos that the Europeans established and that the United States establishes in places like Puerto Rico or Hawaii? Because it's still the case, y'all. It's still the case. My entire life, my family in Puerto Rico have been a colonized people. My entire life, they've had taxation without representation. Right. My entire life, they can't vote for president. They can't vote for senator. They can't vote for representative. They don't even have trial by jury. But they're seen as this, as, as uh, Hermano Edward, Ed, Ed Morales says, a fantasy island. Mm. We're, we're going to continue to exploit you. And guess what? All those modes of exploitation, all those modes of racialized oppression are fenced in by law. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So you have to ask, what's the historical context? What's the social context? And how does it shape these laws? Yeah. Amen. That's amazing. Go ahead, Bradley. One quick piece to, to go back and point out exactly what um, what Nathan's talking about. So, right in uh, Title Seven and the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, has been explained by by Congress itself as the the goal was to bring right African Americans to a position where they had would have been without legal discrimination. Wow. Right. So they state that plainly. And as he's saying, you do see that play out in Griggs, right? Versus Duke, yep. Duke Power. Please hold that point. Just because I want to make this clear to the audience. Yes. Real quick. There was a case that was a, a there was a case that was Griggs versus Duke Power Company, right? Where yep. Duke Power Company was as 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 soon as the Civil Rights Act passed, they started implementing a uh, a procedure in which their employees that were laborers, who usually all the black employees were only allowed to have labor jobs, in order for the employees to move up in the company, they had to take these tests that would determine if they can get that job. Yeah. What has happened is they took that, the black, you got these black employees that took that case to court and said, it is clearly a violation of the Civil Rights Act because they are, they are implementing these tests to discriminate and keep black people out of getting this job. The court, I'm, I'm, I'm doing like a very elementary explanation of it. The court essentially said, well, when the, the, the actual test ended of itself, as Charles, Lawrence, as Charles Lawrence said, does not have racial meaning in the language. There's not racial meaning in the test, in the test but we see that because of all the history of how, how we have done discrimination, how discrimination has been done via law and in jobs, that it is very clear that the reason that this job implemented this test was clearly racially motivated. Therefore, it violates 
the Title VII laws and, you know, what we have with the Civil Rights Act. And they ruled in favor of those who were black because the, the, the court actually took into consideration the racial meaning, the history of the racial meaning and everything of the law. But in, yep. Washington, in Washington and Davis, which is a case Davis, afterwards, yeah. there was a similar case with these black people, black, black folks that wanted to, to, to uh, be police officers. The police department did the same thing yep. and said, you have to pass these tests. And, and blacks were failing it like crazy. So they weren't getting these policing jobs. They took that to court. And then the court said something different than they did with the Griggs case. They said, well, there was no racial intent in the test. The test you doesn't can't. have any racial intent, you know, in the language in it. Therefore, we're not going to call this racial discrimination. And so I think that that's what Bradley was getting at is that the way that the courts decided it the first time was 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 good because they take they took into consideration the racial meaning of history, how black folks are being kept out of these, you know, uh, out of certain institutions or getting certain jobs, even if there's not racial language in the kind of practices that are being brought forth. So I just wanted to, to put that out there for the audience, which is a good way for you guys actually to see how systemic racism even works now in 2021. Yeah with things like voter suppression and stuff like that, racial meaning yep. does not have to be in the language of the law. So I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, br uh, Brother Mason. Right, and so, yeah, going how you explain that. So you should be able to look at, you know, prior to 1964, what is the distribution within this company of labor jobs versus upper level jobs, right? right. Now it's illegal, so you put a test in. And then now the distribution is exactly the same. <laughs> As it was, right, before the Civil Rights Act, right. And so what that earlier court did actually was to implement the intent of the law, which Congress said was to restore, right, African-Americans to a position where they would have been had it not been for legal discrimination, right, in the Jim Crow era, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the intent. It's substantive. Equal protection is understood to, to, to have to do with real life circumstances, right? Not right. just uh, on paper equality. Now, so, but then like you pointed out, then when you, Later, you get something like uh, Washington v. Davis, and now they're looking for intent. And of course, you know, unless you uh, can develop a, a test like, you know, a lie detector test or something <laughs> to determine you know, what intent they had in their minds, regardless of what the outcome was or whatever, in order to determine whether it was a, a, a Title VII violation, then you're never going to be able to do that. And so what something that Freeman points out, and I think it is important when we're talking about equality versus equity uh, and, and this discussion is that the, the very civil rights law that whose intention was to change the circumstances of subordinated peoples, right? Once it's, once it's reinterpreted and once it's gutted, yep. now becomes a, a legitimator of the existing circumstances. Mm. So now... Now, exactly. the law says, wait, 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 no, you can't discriminate. That's against the law. No one discriminates. Just ask him, did you discriminate? No, I didn't discriminate based upon race. Okay, so then the circumstances that are present just two years after must be natural, normal, and just. Right. It just must be that these people are inferior in some way, and, and, then, and that's why they have the subordinated circumstances that they mm. live under, right? So, so. What what was intended, you could say, not by everyone, because I know Nathan will go back to the history and explain how it served a completely different function as well. Mm -hmm. So let's say that the people with the good intentions uh, who created this law and then the stated uh, intentions of Congress, which is to actually change the circumstances that subordinated people live in. Um, as soon as it's gutted, as soon as it's reinterpreted by the courts, now is just a system of legitimation. 
So whatever circumstances exist, whatever disparities exist are just, they're normal and they're natural because it's against the law to discriminate. And if you just ask them, they're not discriminating. That's crazy because that's what Kimberly Crenshaw talks about in race reform and retrenchment as well when she talks about the non-discriminatory laws in job practices. That that an employer cannot discriminate in either, you know, hire or not hire somebody based upon race. All they have to say is we're following the law. And then that that means that they are that they are out of the hot water of of discriminating against people. They can literally be not hiring people because they're black. But all they have to do is say that that's not what they're doing. And because the law and and point to the law and because the law says that everybody like you just said, says, well, then there's there you go. There you go. It must not be that they're discriminating. It has to be that, you know, black people just are not doing what they're, do- they're doing or they're not applying or, you know, it, it has to be anything but racism because the law it's exists. Illegal. Yeah, yeah, because it's illegal. That's the, and, and, and that's how the law, how Alan Freeman talks about how the law kind of gets yep. used to cover uh, it's kind of gets used as a cloak to continue to just be discriminatory. But now, you know, they have they have a cloak to cover it. By just pointing back to the, I call it, I call it, um, what did I call it before? Uh, um, plausible deniability. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I call it. Yeah. It gives everyone plausible deniability. Race, what are you talking about? The law is, well, we, we, there's no racial intent. The law says what it says. We can't, it's illegal to be, to do that. So <laughs> what are you, what are you saying? Right? right. Yep. So in, in the sense, I'd say one of the reasons critical race theory exists is to point that out, how the very laws that we're supposed to grant um, and secure civil rights and equal protection ended up being protecting the subordinated circumstances of the very people it was supposed to help, right? So, so it legitimizes what exists in the world. The disparities that are there, well, they're natural, they're normal, and they're even just. Yep. That's, that's so just, true. That's just that, that's, right? That is so true. That, that's where we are now. And the crazy part is, is the they were able, like someone like Thomas Sowell, right? The, the, the Housing Act was passed, what, in 68? Mm-hmm. That's when Dr. King um, was assassinated. Yep. And I, I believe three or four years later, uh, Thomas Sowell was making a name for himself mm. by saying that, um, that it's the culture of yep. African-Americans of why they're suffering. We're talking we'll like right four, away. three, yep. four years. Yeah, <laughs> Start it right it's, away. End of the, the civil rights movement, that, that argument already began, right? So we, we hear that argument a lot now, but at least there's like 50 years as a right. buffer to, like you said, some plausible deniability. <laughs> but what about when that argument that you're using right now began day one after the laws were passed? Right. You know? Right. In King's own lifetime, he responds to them himself. Yep. Right? That those arguments are, are already happening. So you can see how quickly something that's sold as a remedy turns into a legitimation system like overnight as part of retrenchment. Right. And I thought for sure Nathan was going to come in and point out some one of the reasons that Brown actually occurred and uh, <laughs> right on the mm-hmm. international stage and struggles right. with the USSR and but that would take us down another. <laughs> I know. Right? It's yeah, just too it, much good stuff to talk yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I may, I just want to make the point to that. Like, <laughs> One of the reasons there are so few actual CRT scholars is because so many of these essays are 60 to 120 pages long. It's just one essay. Mm. And and there's so much learning that you'd have to do. It's it's a lot easier to pick up how to be an anti-racist, white fragility. Those books aren't that long. 
Right. You don't have to, you, you don't have to like really dive into all these footnotes to understand a whole lot of what's going on. But now, I mean, we've had conversations about colonialism. We've had conversations about Michonne Integral earlier than before, uh, before Hermano Mason was, was able to join us. We're, we're talking about what's going on in this court case. What's going on in that court case. We're talking about Lee Atwater. We're talking about Southern strategies. Mm-hmm. We're talking about King. We're talking about ideas about anti-Semitism as they related to the Frankfurt. I mean, we're all over. But that's what you have to be doing if you're going to engage CRT justly mm-hmm. in an effort to promote neighbor love. And so that takes so much more work yeah. than the quick soundbite that you all shared earlier, where it's like CRT just is Marxism, Marxism is bad, boom, that's done. Yeah, it's yeah. and that's so easy to do. I literally had somebody tell me last week, I don't have time to read critical I don't I don't have time to read critical race theorists, therefore and I don't actually need to to understand what it is. And I'm like, huh? That doesn't make yeah, any you sense. Should the opposite conclusion. You should say, I don't have enough time and enough interest. That is perfectly fine. That's fine, right. But don't hold an opinion then, okay? <laughs> because you don't know what it is, and that's fine. Right. It's okay. You have to continue to engage in, in neighbor love, and you need to you know, be a proponent of justice. Those are all biblical requirements, but you don't have to pretend to understand something you're not interested in and you don't want to read. Very true. It's perfectly fine. Yep. You don't even have to have an opinion on it. Just say, I don't know. I haven't really looked into it enough. Right. You know? Right. That's so true. One even has to have an opinion on something that is this complex, you know? Mm -hmm. It's good, man. Brothers, this has been so, so helpful. And and I think that for a lot of folks, it's going to be moment of clarity after moment of clarity after moment of clarity. Yeah. Um, So I just want to thank both of you all for coming on. This is... Uh, I know we spent a lot of time talking about critical race theory, but y'all have a lot of thoughts about all kinds of other things that we would love for y'all to be uh, regular contributors to our platform, man. Amen. So Amen to that. We are eternally grateful, man. God bless y'all. Thank you so much for being with us at Southside Rabbi. Yeah. Thanks, Hermanos. Blessings. Blessings.